Ephesians 4 and 14 reads as such, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. As you prepare to take your seats, help me introduce the title for today's message. Everyone say, Growing, growing. In, Christ. in Christ. This is going to be part one. You may take your seats. Growing in Christ. As I mentioned uh, the first Sunday, the theme for our year is growing. It is a build, uh, again, a next step for increase that we had in 2023. But I, I really believe that there's something to this notion of us growing, our growth, and even more so, our growth in our faith. Uh, we have ways that we want to grow physically. We might have ways we want to grow professionally or ways that we want to grow academically, emotionally. All of those are good. But as we are going through this year, I want to make sure that we are growing spiritually to handle what is in front of us. So I think about a story of some friends of mine, um, and I'll just kind of tell you their story. Uh, Madison and Joshua, they enter the doctor's office with their son Ezra in hand. Both parents are working hard to limit the aquifers in their eyes from overflowing. The doctor's words seem all meshed together into a cacophony of syllables indiscernible to the ear ever since they heard that Ezra was significantly behind the developmental stages for his age. The list of possible causes sounded like a foreign language as both of their hearts seemed to fall from their chest and hit the floor. As they prepared to leave trying to console one another, they held Ezra close. All they had been fearing over the past few months was now concretized by the doctor's words. Ezra wasn't growing, and this wasn't good. It is in this way that I think and even recall uh, my wife and I in our early stages of parenthood. You prepare for so many things, but the one thing that I was not prepared for was how much we will be connected to these developmental stages for your children from two months to six months. There are all these things. In fact, uh, it's to the point where you need a full notebook to keep up with. Have they done this by this age? Are they hearing? Are they responding? Are they making eye contact? Are they cooing? Are they not cooing? What does their poop look like? I never thought that I would have to be the inspector of what the poop looked like. But all of these pieces become markers. They begin to signify to us that things are well. And this is important because what we can't see is really important. And so we watch what we can see to give us a glimpse of the things we can't see. So 
We're watching, we're going through all of this, and our biggest thing is to make sure that they are healthily growing. And if I'm honest, as much as this changes, you know, from new parents to older parents, even for some of you that are not parents, you know what this is like, even as children grow into adolescence, they get into teenage or even young adults, we're still watching for markers of growth. And they may not be all physical anymore. We're not looking just to see how tall they are, even though that's important, or how much muscle they hold, or all of those things. But now we're starting to look at other things. How do you take care of yourself? How do you emotionally respond when things don't go your way? How do you deal with difficulty? Are you honest? Are you truthful? Or will you throw someone under the bus just to cover your own tail? All of these things we begin to watch. How do you show appreciation? I'm learning this one more and more. I recognize how much I do for my children. And I also recognize how angry I get when I can tell they don't appreciate it. They think all these things just magically happen. They think internet is available all over the world. They think that if the lights aren't on in every room, that the boogeyman may come. They think that in the wintertime, you should be able to walk around in shorts. So therefore, we should turn the heat up because they're not paying any of those bills. And I recognize how in my own soul, I am watching and believing these kids ain't growing up right. But we watch these things. And these become important because this also affects our adulthood. And sometimes we've bumped into people that we can tell miss some developmental stages in their growth. You may bump into them at work and they don't know how to shut their mouth and not say everything that they think. You remember when your mother said that to you or your, your parent, you, you thought something and you wanted to say it out loud and they hit you with the, just because you think it don't mean you need to say it. Oh, I'm the only one. I, I'll never forget. I was a young kid. I'm graduating. And I, don't ask me why I remember graduating preschool, but this is the one thing from that age I actually remember. It was graduation day, and everybody's parents was coming up. And I see one of my friends is standing with his parents, but they don't look like parents to me. They look like grandparents. So me being an observant and intelligent child, point out the difference in his parents versus everybody else's parents. My mother looked as if she had saw a ghost, is amazingly apologetic, and I can tell you why I remember this day. because she wasn't the only one that looked like a ghost after this whole occasion had finished. There was a bathroom involved and shut your mouth involved and I bet not hear nothing else out of you and just because you think it don't mean you need to say it. We can recognize there's something to this idea of healthy growth. And as we enter into our text today, this is exactly what the writer is talking about. 
Now, many of you, if you're familiar with Ephesians, Ephesians opens up in uh, uh, the first verse in chapter 1, and it says this is a, a epistle of Paul. And many, many of the scholars believe that this may be some of Paul's writing, but more than likely, one of his disciples either finished it filled it in or kind of helped compose it, right? So we're back and forth. If, if, if Paul did all of the writing or if one of his disciples kind of helped out. And there's a reason for that because Paul kind of has a, a way of writing. Some of you know people, they just sound the same. And none of the, the typical pieces that we would see from Paul are there. There's no greeting. It's not directly addressed, right? So it's kind of very open. But this also makes Ephesians a really great book. Because since it's not just identifying individuals, it's also believed that Ephesians was meant to go to multiple different churches. And that is important for us because this is a way that we can learn. That as we look about and think about the variety of things that a variety of churches are dealing with, we too can hear this same wisdom for ourselves so that we can more properly grow. Now, the writer here has talked about the gift in, uh, in chapter 4 now, the gift of the unity, and the gifts of the spirit, and how all of these things are for the edifying of the body. The spiritual gifts are actually for the body. It is for the building of all of us. And the goal for us to build, the reason why we preach or why we teach, the reason why we evangelize, the reason why we do all of these things is so that we won't be immature like children. In fact, the word that is used here uh, can uh, denote either infants all the way up to adolescence. This idea that it is all right to be a child, the problem is if you stay a child. That the goal of our spiritual walk should be growth. Meaning that where you start should not be where you remain. How you entered in should not be where you are at a different level of life or a different level of your faith. And this is not for other people to try to tell you, but this really should be for your own individual assessment. There has to be a point, there has to be a time where you review yourself and say, wait a minute, where am I in my faith? Do I still act the same way that I did when I first came in? Do I still get challenged by all the same stuff? Do I still respond the same way to negativity? Do I still respond the same way when things don't go my way? Do I still question God every single moment that things don't go the, the way I wanted them to go? Or have I learned something in the process? I have a friend, um, and when we travel, uh, she gets so antsy about planes. Now, in my head, like, planes are so, like, we're so used to planes. They're like trains and boats by this point. Like, we know that something really terrible can happen, but it rarely does. We should be able to be cool by now. Nope, 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 not my friend. No matter what happens, soon as the plane goes up, I'm talking about we're in Pentecostal prayer. You know, sometimes, let me, let, me, let me extract that. There's the Baptist prayer, which, you know, you kind of close your hands. You want to let folks know you're praying. You bow your head, and you whisper things, maybe aloud, but typically in your head. Then there's the Pentecostal prayer, where you're now uh, splashing uh, anointing oil all over the plane, and you're telling folks, God is going to make sure that everything on this plane, like she, she's in that point. She is so scared 
every time that the plane takes off, that something is going to happen. Now, potentially the first time that we go through this, that makes sense. Second time, maybe. We've taken like 50 flights. Nothing has ever happened on any of the 50. And her response is, but this could be the one. But I'm one of those people that I watch the flight attendants. I'm not saying that when I get turbulence, it doesn't shake me or rattle me. But I want to watch those who do this regularly, because if they're walking around comfortable and cool, then I have a good chance that everything's probably going to be all right. They've been through this before. They've walked it, they've felt the bumps before, and if they dare are shaking and still got the, the food cart out, we gonna be all right. Now, if I see them go back to their seats and buckle up, if I see one of them put their phone up and do one of these, <laughs> now is the time to turn to Jesus. <laughs> because they've done it so much They've experienced it so much that the same bumps that bother the novice at flying doesn't bother the experienced flyer. Our faith should be just like that. We shouldn't be shook by the same things that we once were when we came in. We got to be able to move. And so the writer is like, now listen, I don't want you to remain immature. I don't want you to remain in the same space. I want you to grow. Grow so that you're not tossed by every wind of new teaching and that you're not influenced by every level of trickery. I want you to grow so you're not tossed by every wind of new teaching and that you will not succumb to clever trickery that is meant to deceive you only to pull you away from the truth. He's writing to these individuals in many ways that are just like us. And he's writing to them because there's this wind of things that are coming that they're battling with and they're contending with and it's pushing on their faith. And these things are still happening. I checked out the um, American Psychological Association. They published this, um, they published an article in a, in a journal called Losing the Faith. And they came up with the four top reasons why people were walking away from the faith. And I was amazed because prior to me thinking or looking into it, I'd already kind of come up with it and I've been praying about, okay, God, what are some of the major challenges, teachings, and difficulties that we're running into? And how well they aligned blew me away. It says that 51.8% of people walk away from the faith because they say, for intellectual reasons, or that they have outgrown the faith. When I went to undergraduate, I remember taking a philosophy course, and me and my teacher bumped heads. We bumped heads because I can tell that my teacher, the philosopher, was an atheist. And although not overtly stated, the goal had been to crush anyone that entered the class with any form of faith. 
to challenge them. And again, this man was amazingly intelligent. He could think circles around me. And that was the goal, that he would punch holes constantly into my thought or my idea about faith. And as I recognized, this wasn't just happening to me, nor was this just happening at my school. But oftentimes, if you think honestly, the idea about intelligence presupposes that we have outgrown faith, that the more intelligent you become. In fact, I've had people look down their noses at me when they think about what I've accomplished and say, and you still believe that? You still buy into that whole faith thing. You believe that there's a God thing. You believe that God has these mandates or these expectations. You believe these things because surely, intellectually, you've learned enough now, you've experienced enough now that you should know that what you have been doing all this time is false. And similar to the Ephesians community and those churches that were being challenged early in the faith, I think the same thing is happening here. And I know some of you, you are really good at being able to mask the questions that we have. But sometimes they rock us. A friend will ask something about the faith and we're like, ooh, I don't know how to answer that. Are you sure? So you mean to tell me, like I get hit with this one often, you mean to tell me that there's this loving God and that loving God is going to send people to hell. It's always like, like, that's like the trump card. They thought they got you with that one like that. Bam! I'm like this, okay, that sounds great. Now move that out the way, right? Because we have these questions. Because if we haven't built our faith and we don't consistently continue to grow, we become challenged at the things that we can and cannot answer. One of the biggest growth points that you have in faith is being okay that there's things that you can't answer. I'll say it again. One of the biggest growing points in your faith is being okay that there are things that you may not rightly have the answer. It would not be called faith if you knew everything. It would be no need for faith if you knew everything. But some of it is to pull you into that. And then others are to push you into deeper study so that you can respond with answers, so that you can respond to someone that asked this whole thing and and pretty much what they call that is theodicy, this idea of how do you have a good God when bad things happen. And we wrestled with that, and Christian thought has been around this since the inception of Christianity. We've seen it, and the Bible gives us so many ways. There are times where we understand that God is at work through. There are times that we understand that God protects us from, and there are some times where terrible things happen to good people. We have too many of them that we can see. I was reading the Bible the other day. I was thinking about John. We just came out of, uh, out of the Christmas season, and we talk about Jesus Our Savior says that there is no prophet greater than John, that nobody is bigger, no one greater. The only one that Jesus would allow to baptize him was John. So surely he must get a hero's life. But we find out that his demise is at the hand of an angry ruler who literally cuts his head off because some woman asked him to. 
I would ask the question, how? How can I grow in my faith if I think that only good things will happen to me? This is the push upon your faith. This is God trying to grow that we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is Lord. But as long as we live in this sin-sick world, bad things will happen until the day that God returns and makes everything right. And since so much is wrong, it will look apocalyptic when he returns because so many things are out of place, so many lies have been told, so much stuff is all awry that when God comes, it's going to feel like an earthquake. It's going to feel like fire has shot down from the sky because our God will be making all things right. But until then... We're made to live within this experience while still trusting God through it. It says we lose faith because we think we've outgrown it. And can we fathom this? This is, this is the thing that I always wonder. I'm blown away by our belief in our own intelligence. I really am, man. I really am. We are so smart that we think we can answer all things, even when we know we can't answer all things. Like science literally has things called theories because we can't really prove it, but this is the best way we can think about it. But yet we think that we're big enough and smart enough to explain away God, that we can explain away life and existence, that we are far more okay with believing that life is happenstance as opposed to purposeful. Do you know how meticulously ridiculous it is for life to just randomly happen? that you are conscious, that you believe that there is a you and you are thinking and you respond and there's love and we do these nice things, there's art. That just all randomly happened because at one point, some great distance and time away, everything was in a singularity and because it just decided to without being able to decide because it wasn't a lie, that it blew up and now we here? That's your answer. That's a better answer than maybe there's a God. I'm telling you, there's so much teaching. There's teachings about subject subjectivity. Many of you have probably heard this, especially if you've been in, in school in the last 10 years to 20 years, that there is no such thing as relative, uh, objective truth anymore especially in postmodern thought, right? We don't believe in objective truth. We believe in subjective truth. And we say it all the time, this is my truth. And I'm old school in this way. I absolutely loathe that statement. I understand your experience of a situation. Once we say that there is only subjective truth, everything is subjective, that in itself becomes a universal statement, but we don't believe in universals. It makes absolutely no sense. I'm sorry, I'm off my... I'm off my, I'm back. But greater than that, it pushes on our notion of God. Because God is absolute truth. If all truth is subjective, we cannot have absolute truth. Therefore, we cannot have God. It is the same thing that was happening in a different way. We have to know pernicious teaching when it's coming towards us. 
I said the second largest reason that people walk away from the faith is traumatic uh, religious experiences or entertaining the, the history of our faith. And I'll be honest, when I was in seminary, this was one of the things that pushed me to my brink. The Christian faith does not always have clean hands. It has often either been in bed with or been used by malevolent actors to harm, to oppress, and to degradate sometimes in the name of God to commit genocide in all parts of the world. That's rough, and that's heavy to deal with. And if we're at the belief that only perfect things can lead to God, then we would have to walk away from the faith. But if only perfect things can lead to God, then we would have to ask what thing would be perfect that we would ever be able to utilize to find God. There isn't a perfect thing that exists. And so I struggle with that. I wrestle with it and I watch it. We see it even in modern day, the way that now uh, our Christian faith has almost been dubbed for like white nationalism. And this doesn't mean that all white people are bad. Absolutely not. But this does mean that if we're connecting it to a superiority as if because your skin is one color, that means that you are more intelligent than everybody else. And therefore, everybody else that is not that does not deserve to be a part of this nation. That is problematic thinking. And the same would be true if we would be like, well, if you don't have melanin in your skin, you are not smart enough and you don't deserve to live within this country. Both would be equally problematic. The challenge then becomes is how do we now wrestle and contend with the fact that our faith at times has been co-opted? Because now it makes us not want to trust any leadership. We don't want to trust any of the faith. So then we think we can do this thing by ourselves. You know what is better? You know what? You know, I'm just going to stay away from the church. You know, church crazy. You know what I'm saying? And people in there, they be wild. You know what I'm saying? They don't even live that life. You know, they be telling you all that. But they don't be living that life. I be seeing them. You know what I mean? Like, they be online. Like, they got they, they got their, like, Facebook and they got their Twitter that they let the church folks see. Then they got that other one on Instagram, that TikTok. And you know, shorty, don't even be living right. You know what I'm saying? Sorry, I'm from Chicago. That just took me back to Chicago. And it happens. But sometimes it's the dropping of a leader. Somebody we greatly revered, we respected, and then it comes out that they haven't always been able to hold to the faith. These things shake us. They are meant to be tricks. But the thing about a trick is it's often trying to make you look at one thing while ignoring another. So I'm gonna try something. For my illustration, brought out a deck of cards. I've always wanted to be a, um, yeah, you know, like a card shark. I always wanted to do like, you know, <laughs> you know, like Monty. You know what I'm saying? I always wanted to be able to do that thing. All right. So here it is, deck of cards, regular deck. And let's say I pick a card. I don't have jokers in here, Miss Cynthia, but thank you for pointing that out. Okay. All right. So here it is. Card is five, five of diamonds. You see it, you see it, everybody there. Just take this back and put it into the middle. That's not the middle, the middle, that's not the middle. 
the middle of the deck. And I'm going to flip the top one. Definitely not the five, OK? Flip the next one. Nope, not the five. OK, don't worry about it. I'm going to hit it. All of them going to flip over. And now the card should be the only one in here. Five of diamonds, right? That's what we do. But it's a trick. The trick is I make you look at one thing while I'm doing something else. And I believe the same thing happens in the kingdom. The enemy comes and he distracts us with all of this stuff over here. We're worried about this. We stay focused over here. And then the real bad stuff is happening right over here. And then we buy into it hook, line, and sinker. We think that it's magic. We think that it's amazing. We think that this changes everything when the truth has always been there. The folks want to trick us. The Christian faith is not meant for us to be tricked but it's meant for us to be able to hold on to the truth, that once you are given the truth, you remember it. And let me start, foundational truth is that Jesus is Lord. I want to say it again, that you never have to question this. This becomes solid rock. Jesus is Lord. Colossians tells us that God was pleased to find his fullness in Christ Jesus, that there is none other than Jesus by which we can rightly understand who God is. This is important, but that knowledge is not meant just to be something that we tuck away into the recesses of our minds. It is meant to get into our being and change everything. If Jesus is Lord, if God is God of all, if God controls it, if God makes sure everything will end the way that God desires. Therefore, when anything comes my way, I process it through the understanding that Jesus is Lord. My life ain't working out right, but Jesus is Lord. My health is going bad, but I know Jesus is Lord. My kids are acting up, but I know that Jesus is Lord. I don't always know what to do, but I do know that Jesus is Lord. And no matter what happens, no matter what shifts, no matter what changes, I am always connected to the one that can do all things. And this is why the gospel writers were so intentional to tell us all of these stories because they wanted to let us know that you may encounter some things, but we've met somebody that never met a problem that he couldn't solve. That, that we met somebody that never had an issue that was too big. That, that we've met somebody that was able to answer all of our fears and worries. That we met somebody that's otherworldly and when you lean into that knowledge, your whole life lives different. Therefore, I'm not worried when the plane starts shaking because I'm looking at the attendance. I'm knowing I'm going to be all right. So I grab my drink. I'll take a sip and know that God is going to get me where God said he'll get me. I'll trust him now. I'll trust him tomorrow. I'll trust him forever because God is my everything. Because God is the solid rock on which I stand. Because God is not like sinking 
can't stand because God is able to anchor my soul in the Lord. And I know it doesn't matter the winds, but my God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all I can ever ask or think. And even the messed up parts of me, it is my God that is able to transform them. This is why subjective truth is so messed up. Because it makes us think that everybody has done the same things and everyone is just as good to be followed. And I've already told you, I know how bad I feel when I feel like my kids aren't appreciative for all the work that I provide, all the stuff that I do for them. But can you imagine what it must be like to have given your whole life, to have broke the chains of sin, to lead out now with all power in your hands, making sure that now all the requirements of sin have been fulfilled because you gave your life, because you spilled your blood. Therefore, now the access code to get folks into heaven is J-E-S-U-S, -S, and I'm so glad that he did it. But how must it feel when now folks want to append that to something else? They want to act like something else can save them, something else can raise them, something else can free them, something else is just as good. But I've come to say there is none like Jesus, none that gave his life upon a cross, none that had his body planted into a grave, none that rose with all power in his hand, and none that's sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. This is Jesus. And as we grow into that knowledge, as we grow into that truth, there truly is nothing we can't handle Nothing we can't face on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. The goal is for us all to continue to grow, that we might become more mature. So when the winds blow, when the trickery comes, we're not influenced because we don't know, but we're anchored deep into the knowledge and the fullness of Jesus Christ. Pray with me.